It's not just issue one that the state house Republicans are trying to ram through and change democracy in Ohio. They're also trying to change the primary system to make things tougher. It's one of the subjects we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa, you're up first. With so many Americans registered as independents, most people in this country have no say in which candidates appear on the general election ballots. Some places are trying to end the tyranny of the party primary, which gives us fringe candidates by going the ranked choice voting. So what is Ohio thinking with the proposed laws that will double down on party primaries and make them more restrictive? Yeah, there's a couple of bills in the House right now introduced by Republicans, House Bills 208 and 210, that would establish a closed primary election. So voters would have to register their party affiliation, Democrat or Republican, with the state in order to participate in primary elections. And both would ban voters from casting ballots if they register with a different party or if they're unaffiliated. Voters can change their party, but they have to notify the state ahead of the primary. So the differences between the two bills, 208, you have to register as a Republican or a Democrat at least 30 days before the primary election. House Bill 210, you must declare your affiliation by the end of the year before the primary takes place. So that's several months in most cases. Uh, The sponsor of House Bill 208, uh, Thomas Hall, the Republican from Butler County, said this would improve election security by banning people from other parties from trying to dictate the election outcome. (laughs) (laughs) And I've tried that in Texas. It didn't work. Um, It it hasn't, he says he hasn't seen cross-primary voting in his own races, but he's heard about it unsubstantiated in other races. And he says that the Secretary of State's office helped him draft the language for House Bill 208. So it seems like LaRose is in on the fix. LaRose's spokesman, Rob Nichols, says the bills will prevent partisan mischief and meddling that games the system and will also help rationalize the Ohio voter database of 8 million registered voters. So currently in Ohio, 1 million are registered as Democrats, 1.3 million are registered as Republican, 5.7 million are unaffiliated or independent. And Nichols claims this data is not reflective of the current partisan makeup of the state. The League of Women Voters of Ohio President Jen Miller says this will sideline independent voters like you, Chris, and increase the chances of ideologically extreme candidates to win party primaries. Well, we are working on a civil discourse project this year, and voting systems is part of what we're doing. Sabrina Eaton is actually working on this very topic. The, 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 it's very clear that the party primary system, which was brought in as a reform 100 years ago to get rid of the boss tweeds picking the candidates, has been corrupted. And, and so many people, like me, have no say who the candidates are. We're just faced in November with bad choices. And there are great systems that get rid of that, that allow everybody to have a say. It reduces the chance of getting the Jim Renacci nut jobs on the ballot and put sane people in that will work together with people on the other side, ranked choice. 
and reform is needed. I think that ultimately there'll be some efforts to reform Ohio, but if issue one passes, it'll make it impossible to do. I, I think what they're trying to do here is drill down. Jim Renacci has been going on and on about this all year. We got to stop people from being able to corrupt our party primaries. We need to get rid of the party primaries. So it's so typical of the Ohio Republicans are doubling down on what is a bad system and making it worse. Think about the numbers you just re- related. Five plus million people have no mm-hmm. say in the candidates that they're faced with in November. They're just left with a tiny percentage of Ohioans who vote in primaries picking the loons that are on the ballot. That's not the way to go forward. And shame on these guys for doubling down. We have to stop issue one or there's no chance we'll reform what's going on in this state. But one of the reforms is to get rid of the party primaries. Yeah. And ranked choice voting, you know, has become a popular trending topic. I think a lot of people are seeing how their systems are broken. I did point out on a Facebook post this morning, you know, this is terrible. And I linked to our Cleveland.com article. And some guy said, well, there are lots of states that have closed primaries. There are only seven including Florida, Pennsylvania, and New York, and some of them are Democratic strongholds. But the timing is suspicious. There's been nary a peep about this until this week. I think I think the timing is based on the move you're seeing to get rid of the party primary. Look, it's not just a Republican thing. In Cuyahoga County, it's the Democratic Party. The mm-hmm. Democratic Party voters, the small number that show up to vote in the primary, pick our candidates, and we don't get good choices. It's a terrible system. It's 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 bipartisan bad, and it needs to be dumped. I, I just it's so typical of Ohio's Republican lawmakers to be going in the opposite direction of what is becoming common sense good policy. These guys are trying; they, they're in power now, and everything they're doing is to maintain the power, even in the face of demands for change. And it's just not the way to govern. You're supposed to govern for all. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The U.S. Supreme Court decision on who has the power in congressional redistricting is about as big as Supreme Court decisions come. If it had gone the other way, America would have been in chaos. It has big ramifications for Ohio. Laura, how is that? The state legislature is not above the law. So someone should make sure the state legislature understands this. But (laughs) lawmakers cannot make congressional redistricting decisions unchecked by state law and courts. This decision came in response to a challenge from Republican lawmakers in North Carolina. They had appealed a decision by their Democratic-leaning state Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court. They cited a so-called, quote, independent state legislature theory. And Ohio Republicans last year faced this similar situation when it came to gerrymandering and redistricting, and they sought to piggyback onto this case while appealing a decision by the Ohio Supreme Court. Remember, they basically ignored the Ohio Supreme Court's order to stop gerrymandering and make fair districts in the state and congressional representative districts. So if they had gone the other way, they would have said that the state limits voters overwhelmingly approved in 2018 in Ohio, the ones that state lawmakers actually helped write, that those were unconstitutional. Well, if this had gone the other way, Ohio voters would have had no chance to end gerrymandering. The The Republicans in power would have gerrymandered with no way of anybody stopping them 
it's a preposterous suggestion. It was a fringe theory. But three U.S. Supreme Court justices voted against mm. this. They wanted to, to give this power to the legislature. It's all part of what issue one's about. It's to keep all the power in the legislature so that citizens cannot do anything to overturn it. This was another effort at the very same kind of thing. It's been rebuffed. Now, the, the legislators know that they've got a cooked Supreme Court now. Sharon mm-hmm. Kennedy is the chief justice. They no longer make their rulings based on the law. They make it on their political partisanship. So I suspect that whatever they do with the next round of maps will get rubber stamped by Sharon Kennedy's Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, it's a really interesting split here in the U.S. Supreme Court on who voted. So Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett jo- joined with the liberal justices, so does Sotomayor. Elena Kagan and Kentanji Brown Jackson in the decision. I would not have put those five together. <laughs> would you? Well, and the chief justice wrote it. Look, yeah. this was the right thing. This was this was a ridiculous theory that should should have been rebuffed way down low and never gotten to this point. It would have turned America into chaos. We would have not had representative government anymore. It would have been overlords. The right thing happened. It's a shame that Matt Huffman and company were counting on this to try and thwart the will of the voters. The voters in Ohio passed a constitutional amendment by 70% to stop gerrymandering. All those guys ignored it. And they I think all defied the will of the voters and there was no consequence. Well, I mean, that, this exactly. Is, there was no consequence. We had an August primary because we just had to get something on the books to, to vote in November. And what most people probably don't realize is it's not over. Like, it's still unsettled. They're, they're supposed to go back to the drawing board, literally, again, later this summer. It'll be really interesting to see what they turn in and what the Supreme Court does. The only thing, though, is there has been a separate ruling on this in which the Supreme Court is backing that you have to consider the racial makeup of districts mm-hmm. in two different states. Ohio, is there's, there's a group in Ohio pushing that too, that the, the latest round of gerrymandering disenfranchised black voters. So they're not going to be able to ignore that in, in this round because there's now precedent saying you've got to consider that. But I'm sure the maps will be cooked. I mean, these guys will feel like they're going to get a rubber stamp from Sharon Kennedy and then there's no nowhere else to go. So I, I think the maps will probably get worse. You certainly can't count on Mike DeWine, Matt Huffman, Frank LaRose and company to do the right thing because they never have. It's today in Ohio. You'd think that by now, Ohio lawmakers would know that forcing Ohioans to provide extra unneeded cash to the utilities is a bad idea. I mean, Larry Hillsholder is getting sentenced tomorrow because of all the corruption involved in taking care of the utility. But both Matt Huffman Senate and Jason Stevens House have quietly added more goodies on the back of all of us for the investor-owned utilities. Courtney, what is their latest sleazy scheme? Yeah, the, the latest draft of the budget, there's a there's provisions in there under which utilities would be able to start charging customers a collective, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to build infrastructure for speculative economic development sites. And then there's also a provision that involves electric vehicle charging hubs in which customers would would pay into these projects by the utilities. And this change, like you said, was slipped in, it seems pretty quietly. And under these changes, Ohio's investor-owned gas and electric, excuse me, utility companies could build out what critics are saying are unlimited and unspecified infrastructure 
for potential projects. Now think of this in in the sense of economic development projects where there isn't electric or, or gas access. A lot of times companies want that access built out quickly so they can do their thing. But the speculative nature of this means that, you know, tax or ratepayers could be on the hook for these projects, even if they aren't sold, even if they kind of go belly up. And, you know, under current law, gas utilities can charge folks about $1.50 on their bill for what's called, quote, prudently incurred infrastructure development costs. But this budget proposal would double that charge to $3 and expand its uses. And and that equals about $67 million per year that could go to gas companies from customers. On the electric side, power companies could file to get costs reimbursed for all their infrastructure, like wires, poles, and substations. Yeah, this th- th- we got to remember these are investor-owned utilities. They are making a profit. This is not nonprofit business. Th- this would be no different than the legislature passing a law saying, "All right, everybody in Ohio, you got to pay three dollars a month to Amazon because you know they might build more warehouses here, which would be good good for jobs." So just start giving them your cash. This is not the way it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be much more. What is the cost? What is the plan? The the the, the customers do have to help get infrastructure put in, but they've got to say exactly what they're doing. And in the case of First Energy, they've been terrible about their infrastructure investment. So why would we trust somebody like First Energy, the most corrupt utility in the history of the state, to do the right thing with all this extra money? I what All this tells me is the lobbyists are back in force getting whatever they want. The, 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 we're the cash register for all of these lobbyists and utilities and the legislature just keeps taking our money and giving it to them. They did it. They're doing it with the tobacco companies. Now they're doing it with the utilities and Larry Householder is going to prison after tomorrow. Don't you get it? The lobbying efforts here is that, that definitely stuck out to me and Jake's story, right? AEP, the biggest electric company in Ohio lobbied for this provision as it applies to their bills. You know, the the president of the Ohio Gas Association was was talking about how this would be good for gas companies in our interview with him. Meanwhile, you know, we don't know. The, the other piece of this is the ability to charge customers to build out EV charging for electric vehicles. The House's version of the budget wanted to keep standing utilities out of that market. The Senate version revived language that would allow them to come in and charge customers to get involved in that new energy market. And, you know, we asked First Energy how they felt about this. They declined to weigh in. And as of what we know right now from state records, the company hasn't disclosed any lobbying on this legislation. So I'm curious what's happening in, in the back rooms around this as well. Look, that is exactly like making you and I pay the money to build gas stations. That that's it's ridiculous. If you if you're the electric utility and you're going to make money by people pulling in their cars to get charged up, we shouldn't have to pay to build the facility. We'd never have. That's not the way it works. And I thought this had been settled, but again, the, the the these guys all have the Matt Huffmans in the world in their pocket. They're giving them anything they ask for with no respect for the taxpayers of this state. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Zachary Smith took a look at whether Ohioans on average are making enough money to pay their rent. Lisa, what's the story? In most 
populated areas, they really aren't. So the data comes from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, and Zach crunched the numbers. He found that the greater Cleveland-Akron area are among the top five areas in Ohio that require a higher wage to afford rent when you use the formula that rent should be 30% of your gross income. So in the Cleveland-Elyria area, that would amount to $19.19 an hour. In Akron, $19.75. And um, the number one in the state was Union County, which you would have to make $22.79 to afford rent within that 30% uh, threshold. So if you take an example, if you're living alone, making minimum wage, you would have to work 76 hours a week to afford a two-bedroom apartment at a fair market rate of $993. I don't know if I've seen any below 1000 And then if in a one-bedroom, you would have to work 60 hours a week to afford $789 a month in rent. So rent is skyrocketing. The Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio, Director Amy Regal says rents are up 17% in two years. That's much faster than wages and common jobs. And she says this low-wage and high-rent gap will affect many job sectors, home health care aides, fast food workers, factory workers, order for fulfillment people and customer service. So yeah, this not not a pretty picture. But if you look nationally, Ohio is better. I mean, we're ranked number 37 out of 50 states in housing costs. We're lower than Michigan, Wisconsin, and Illinois, but we're higher than Indiana here in the Midwest. Yeah, but what's troubling is the number of people that are in that category where they really can't afford it, Mm -hmm. which makes the Senate version of the Ohio budget all that much more troubling because Mike DeWine and the House were trying to help people with homelessness issues and hunger issues, and the Senate stripped all that out. They're reconciling it now, but these are the kinds of people that would have been helped by that additional money in the budget. And while Matt Huffman is so busy helping out tobacco companies and utilities, he's ignoring these folks. And there are a lot of them. There, well, and one in three Ohioans or 1.5 million Ohioans are renters. So yes, this affects a lot of people. And you have to remember that pandemic assistance and child care tax credits and SNAP benefit cuts, you know, SNAP benefits that were pandemic related have all gone away now. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, here's someone who most definitely can afford rent. Why do the board members of the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority think their CEO, India Birdsong Terry, deserves a $56,000 raise? Laura. They think she's done a really good job, but you're right. This is a whole lot of money. We're talking about increasing her salary from $278,512 a year to $335,000. Plus there will be this lump sum of the monthly difference between the two figures dating back to January 1st. So around $30,000, that would make it retroactive. Plus she would continue to be eligible for annual performance bonuses up to 15% of her salary. She's also got some other benefits like $3,500 in reimbursement for a yearly executive health evaluation, up to $3,000 in paid membership dues, and five weeks of vacation. The board president said the contract discussion, which they have yet to have, will probably be favorable. He said she's done a great job. And the Ohio Department of Transportation has now awarded the agency another $3.2 million to buy six new compressed 
gas, sorry, compressed natural gas buses. So she's been leading the organization since 2019. There were problems with the prior CEO. Back then, they had no idea how they were going to find any money to replace their rail fleet. She's coming up with some of that. Obviously, she had to deal with the pandemic, which has been a real problem. They're still not up to their regular ridership since before that. But so far, glowing reviews saying she's done well with what she's had to face. Yeah, I just, how do they come up with $56,000? Why not 50 or 55? And why does it have to be retroactive? She's going to get a big chunk of money dating back to January 30th. Just, I, how do they come up with it? What What is the formula by which you say it's $56,000? Or do they just call the Metro Parks Board and say, hey, <laughs> hey, you love to give big raises. What's your philosophy on how much we should give? I mean, it did go up to an even number, up to 335, and it was like, you know, 278, 512. So maybe like, we'll just even this out here. I don't know where they come came up with it exactly. It does seem like a lot of money. I've only heard good things about her. But uh, even the Clevelanders for Public Transit, which they it's a local transit advocacy group, they critiqued her. They said it's hard to fully evaluate the progress since the pandemic changed everything, but it's not like they're up in arms with it. It is just kind of interesting because it's not like the RTA is swimming in cash. No. I mean, you would like them to have said, we did a study across the country on what comparable jobs are paying, and we looked at her competence level, and we think in the matrix, this is what would be fair, uh, and we- Right, instead of like a dartboard, like, here's what we threw and what we hit. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb had a press event Tuesday, and you were there to drill him on why he fired his economic development director. Did he finally answer your questions? Yes, and it was nice to finally hear from the mayor why he booted economic development director Tessa Jackson in public hearings. It sounds like she was doing a lot of work that aligned with Bibb's priorities, but City Hall, it had been crickets for nearly two weeks after they showed her the door on June 15th. And so Bibb at this news conference did finally address it. He said he wanted to go in a different direction from for the department. He talked about how the city would continue to, you know, continue the hard work of inclusive economic growth. But he did seem to drill in on, on what the rub was with Jackson in his mind. You know, I asked him, okay, you want a new direction? What, what is that new direction? What's different about this new direction than what Jackson was delivering? And he said that the city, quote, wants to continue to restructure our economic development department to be more responsive to the business to community, to make sure we can be more aggressive to attract and retain new companies, and basically to make it easier to navigate City Hall. Well, we've heard for years the City Hall is pretty much impossible to navigate, and he did run on a on a plank saying he was going to change that. Uh, so if if he's saying that she wasn't the change agent for that and he needs to find one, that would be in keeping with his campaign. I know Norm Edwards, who represents the Black Contractors Organization, is on fire. He keeps sending emails out quoting your stories, so... Not sure we've heard the last of this. Yeah, and, and I just, I, I find it interesting to to make the department be more responsive. It it seemed like Jackson, in her, her big talk to city council earlier this year in February, was really talking about making City Hall easier to navigate, making incentives be more accessible and transparent to all. She, she did like in the department previously where 
if you wanted something, you had to like basically have someone handhold you and walk you through the incentive process. And, and she talked about how she wanted to open it up. So I'm wondering if it sounds like Bibb saying that work's going to continue under his new director. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The first big investment on Opportunity Corridor, the road that links University Circle to I-490, is taking shape, and it's huge. Lisa, when will it open? Yeah, it looks like it's going to open in October. So Cleveland Cold Storage is building a 156,000-square-foot cold storage facility at the southeast corner of Opportunity Corridor and East 75th Street. It'll be one of the first businesses since the road opened in 2021. Um, Cleveland Cold Storage is part of Orlando Baking. It's under the Orlando Baking Company umbrella. So um, the head of sales, Nick Pasidi, says this is going to fill a huge need for food manufacturing companies. Um, they, you know, they have to rent space in Columbus now for cold storage, and they have a dozen trucks a day going back and forth. Very, very pricey. He says that, you know, uh, this is not only going to fill the need for Orlando, but many other people. There will be 122,000 square feet of freezer space, 20,000 square feet at 34 degrees, which is right about your refrigerator, and 10,000 square feet of dry storage. So Cleveland Cold Storage, Orlando will be using one-third of that space, and then they'll be renting out the rest. Um, a Hudson-based company, Arlington Valley Farms, the makers of snack and waffles and switches, say that this new facility will cut their transportation costs by 75 They're also going to Columbus. They say they may keep that space, but they will transition over to this Cleveland cold storage space when it opens in October. It's amazing how fast they've put this thing up. I remember when they were breaking ground and they had a tent out with the chairs and their little celebration and to see this thing taking shape. And a whole lot of people see it taking shape because Opportunity Carter on many afternoons is a parking lot (laughs) Mm -hmm. because so many people are using it. It probably needed extra lanes. And it's interesting that this need has been unfilled for decades. Apparently, cold storage is not easy to find. I mean, if the closest one is Columbus, this is a great deal. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've asked this question a lot, but we may now have the final answer. Is Lordstown Motors kaput, Laura? Well, I'm never buying an endurance pickup truck. (laughs) I'm not sure about you. Uh, It's possible it could make a comeback. I wouldn't bet on it. I haven't thought it was really a viable business for a long time. And this is pretty much the, the nail in the coffin. I mean, they're filing for bankruptcy. And this has been a long time coming. We've known about the, I mean, we've known about issues forever and not just because one of the prototypes caught on fire, but in the, the spring, they were in danger of being delisted from the NASDAQ because the share price closed below a dollar. They split stocks and then they had this fight with Foxconn. And now on Tuesday, they said they're firing a law, filing a lawsuit against high, Han High Technology Group and certain affiliates, including Foxconn, because it details the fraud and willful, consistent failure to live up to commercial and financial commitments to the company. It's looking to sell the endurance vehicle, all the related assets, and that it wants to restructure under Chapter 11 with the help of the sale process. I mean, it's yeah. not looking good for Lordstown. Yeah, and, and that lawsuit sounds like there's going to be a lot of back and forth because Foxconn has argued Lordstown didn't live up to its right. obligations. Right, and, and so prob- I mean, seems- I could see arguments on both sides. It, it's just sad because this has been such a part of that community 
since 1966. That's when the first Chevy Impala rolled off the assembly assembly line there at the General Motors plant. And they were used to build the Chevy Vega, Pontiac Astray, mm-hmm. and the Chevy Cavalier. They built the Chevy Cruze. I still remember that giant billboard that was on the side of that building. If you drove the turnpike toward uh, Youngstown, you would see it there. That ended in 2019. That's when 1,400 employees were laid off. That was just the very last bit of them. If you're interested in the history of the plant, Sean McDonald put together a really interesting timeline, gets into the nitty gritty of when the endurance was at the White House and President Trump lauded it as a comeback for manufacturing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about this one when he was cited, so we owe it to attorney Sabod Chandra to talk about him being cleared. Why did an appellate court throw out the criminal contempt of court conviction against him involving that case where university hospitals negligence led to the perishing of fertilized embryos? Courtney. Yeah, like you said, the Ohio 11th District Court of Appeals Monday overturned this Geauga County judge's decision stemming from this 2018 UH case. Sabo Chandra had been, you know, found contempt of court was the finding there. And and the judge required him to pay a hundred dollar fine, take 10 hours of professional conduct courses, and the appeals court wiped that all out. For his part, Chandra said he wasn't particularly surprised to learn he wasn't a criminal. And, you know, <laughs> he um he, we went, so let's rewind to how this all started. Chandra filed a motion in, in spring of 2021 that contained a, just a bunch of information about this case, including a UH doctor's assertion that the hospital staff and administrator and administrators caused this freezer to malfunction. That's kind of a landmine accusi- accusation. And, and among other issues that the judge found in that filing, there was an assertion by UH that some attorney-client privilege was in this motion, and the judge, Carolyn Paschke, pulled the filing from the docket, called a hearing. L- later, Chandra filed the same motion again after the judge had yanked it, but he did so with a patient name redacted. But Paschke went ahead and found him in contempt of court for that, and what the appeals court this week concluded was that that order that removed the unredacted filing from the court's docket, it was an ambiguous order from the judge and that Chandra couldn't have violated an unclear order that was issued. So the court said the order didn't explicitly direct Chandra to refrain from refiling here. And it just concluded this was a weak a weak point from the judge. Yeah, we loved the filing because it was loaded with good information. At the time, the judge made it sound like that Sabochandra put in documents in his motion that that she didn't want in there. And so she said, get them out of there. And then he refiled the motion containing those same documents after she had sealed the other one. That That's the way it came across when the contempt citation was was made. What's clear from this and from... Chandra's pleading is the judge was never clear about that. And so there's no way he could violate that order because she never really said what she wanted. Uh, The clarity that she claimed in the contempt citation just wasn't there. So he's cleared. We talked about him when he was convicted. Now we've talked about him when he's cleared. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Thursday. Thursday.